Hey, welcome back to the Backyard Professor on Mormonism Live session. I'm just munching a couple of sunflower seeds real quick. I will proceed shortly. There are a number of ideas and items that I have found in this truly terrific book. Um, the Search for Harmony. It's a 1993 book, Essays on Science and Mormonism, edited by Gene A. Sessions and Craig J. Oberg. Um, really seriously, this is a power-packed book. <laughs> I am surprised I've been reading it all day ever since my uh, morning session this morning. And I am amazed at the depth of research and ideas. Hey, JB, maybe one. Good to see you. Yes, welcome from New York. Gail Capson, hello, my dear family member. Welcome back. Um, I enjoyed having you here this morning. We have a magnificent collection of essays. Now, in this morning's session, I was describing how I was going to, uh, there is a dialogue, and it's an entire uh, dialogue edition of the information on the James E. Talmadge, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith, B.H. Roberts, and Henry B. Eyring and Joseph Fielding Smith controversies. Whoops, sorry, I'm spitting all over my screen. That's rude of me. And lo and behold, every one of those are in this book. <laughs> so I don't have to go hunt up that, uh, that, uh, dialogue issue. I'm not even sure where it's at in my library. I've moved things around so much that I just can't hardly uh, figure things out. Hang on, my dryer's running and it's driving me crazy. Hold on, I'll be right back. Hey, Tim Rathbone, good to see you. Mark Crespin, yeah, baby, yeah, baby. Hang on, I'll be right back. sweetie. I'm just on Backyard Professor live session. It's not a big deal. My wife said she feels bad and I told her, don't sweat it. These guys are used to me coming and going all the time out of screen. <laughs> anyway, the good news is this book, really, truly, uh, I mentioned that I probably was going to, if there's enough interest, and it seems to be that there is, uh, go into the details of the controversy within the Mormon leadership, which is not anything any of us were ever told about. And I think there are still Mormons who are completely oblivious to that fact. So, hey, Doug, good to see you, buddy. Yeah, my brother in our, oh, and Peter Hibbs, Higgs, sorry, Higgs, I'm, I'm eating sunflower seeds, so I've been lisping. Got to eat health food. Hey, by the way, I joined a gym. Yeah, I'm back into lifting weights and walking on the treadmill steadily and all that. I'm going to go back down to 200 pounds. I was up to 260, way too heavy. It all goes to my gut. I've been fat and sassy ever since. And I am going to lose my weight. So, hey, Dan Vogel, welcome. I'll drink to have them all of you here right now. So I will keep you apprised of my progress in the gym.
my goal is not only to lose weight down to 200 pounds, but to end up looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger in my old age. So, hey, Patty Cake, good to hear you. Good to see you. Hear you. See you. Hi, all you lovelies. Yes, Patty Cake. You are the lovely, not us. I know what some of these guys look like, and I wouldn't call them lovely. <laughs> Whoops. Of course, then, you see what I look like, and I am the clown par excellence, right? <laughs> Okay, everybody, don't leave me now. Oh, look, I lost three-fourths of my crowd already. It's gone down from three down to negative six. There is six of you in the hole here. All right. Um. Yes, it's all right, Elisa. Go be with your house guests. This will be recorded, and so we'll, we'll catch up to you. All right. Have a good program tonight. I read half this book today, started reading it after my session. I could not put it down. There are many, many very excellent articles in this book. One of the better ones is by Eldon J. Gardner. Now, he was at the University of Utah, Organic Evolution in the Bible, and he is describing the principles of organic evolution, and he does a pretty good job on that. And he describes how it deals, among other things, with living organisms, plants, and animals. We know that. That's the word organic, right? What has life? We're aware of that. Based on a dynamic system in nature through which variation and through which selection and through which isolation all occur. We, we understand that. So what he says here, I want to read because it has direct relevance to this theme that I've been pursuing now for like three or four different videos that is, if this very well could be as big of a uh, line of videos as my book of Abraham one was because there is so much important information on this. And the parallels and controversies and contradictions and issues of how science and religion <clears throat> Excuse me, and science and Mormonism specifically have dealt with each other. Hey, John Rosbarsky, how you doing? Welcome. Good to see you again. Oh, and Newton Lemos is here. Brazil connecting. Yeah. Welcome from Brazil. Lemnos. Lemos. All right. Nice and hot here in Colob. You're in Colob already? Wow, that's amazing. We're just back here on little humble earth, Newton. So send us a light signal. We'll see you. We'll we'll catch up to you here in about what 88 million years. <laughs> hey, RE4 Maverick, good to see you. Oh, well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. He says I have a good heart. Uh he or she. I'm not sure if you're a he or a she. In fact, I've never seen you here before, have I? Welcome in that case. Brand new, brand new viewer. Good. I've got a great idea here to share with you guys. This is on page 193 of this excellent text, Searching for the Harmony. Physical man, as part of nature, has evolved from mammal, mammalian ancestry. This is a dig against Boyd K. Packer, and I never mind finding those digs when I can because his intellect is so utterly childlike and naive and uninformed that 
Now, we do come from mammalian ancestry, but, and this is the important point. See, this is where people get confused about the subject of evolution. And when they're Mormons, I've actually had this argument presented to me, not recently, thank goodness. I would probably uh, lose my cake or whatever. <laughs> right, Newton has sent us a light signal. We'll be communicating with you here in about 88 million years, Newton. Woohoo! Oh, well, thank you. Chess and really, yeah, I've got to get back on doing my chess videos. I had a patron this morning say, hey, where are all the chess videos? So I've got to get back on the bandwagon with that. Thank you. So we are not descended from a modern monkey. Now, this is critical. You know, people, people who are anti-evolution, well, don't call me a monkey. Well, I'm going to call you a donkey's ass then because we don't claim and evolution doesn't claim that we're evolved from a monkey as such. Now, understand this. This is critical. And this is why I liked uh, Stephen L. Peck, Evolving Faith, LDS biologist at BYU. But this guy's the real McCoy. So don't count them out just because they're Mormons still and they still believe what the brethren teach, sort of. At least they let the brethren think they believe them. But yet they're in good biology and they are good to the hilt. On page 194, it is inaccurate to speak of man as having descended from any kind of monkey now living. So understand this. See, people will say, well, I'm not a monkey. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. None of us are. However, and here's the kick, there is abundant evidence to show that man received his body from more generalized mammals of the taxonomic order called primate, and the order to which man and monkey belong is this primate order. So we have what is called in the scientific parlance a common ancestor, but the interesting thing is, evidence cited along with that from other lines of investigation indicates that man obtained his body from animal ancestors, but there are no close relatives of man upon the earth at this time. They're all dead. They're gone. And the near men from which man may have descended, all of those other species are extinct. Okay, so understand this. You don't get to pretend like you know what the hell you're talking about when you look at a monkey and say, that's not my nephew or brother. Yeah, no kidding, dork. Of course it's not. That's not the argument being presented in evolution, but there is a common ancestor. And the DNA is exquisite on this. And I am reading some information on that. Uh, there is a, oh no. I dropped him on his head. There is some new information here. Relics of Eden. And this guy has written a very good book. This is the powerful evidence of evolution in human DNA. And so I, and I will be getting to that uh, information uh, as I can. So just so that we understand. Although man and his immediate ancestors were not good fossil formers, and they have lived for the most part in environments where fossils are not readily found, and that's unfortunate, but that's reality, there is now a fairly complete fossil record of man's physical ancestry. So there's the information. This guy's a Mormon. 
He's a biologist out of Utah State. Now, of course, the BYU people will say, well, see, that's proof he's apostate because he didn't come to BYU. You can throw all that idiotic noise out the window. We're not interested in the college rivalries here. Here is another very interesting thing he says on page 195. Now understand this is not a this is not a Richard Dawkins. This is not a biased devil-inspired evolutionist talking from the scientific end in order to cut down uh, religion by elevating Darwin. This is really important. Darwin had nothing against the Bible story of man's origin and history, and he was actually quite surprised by the reaction that his writings brought forth among theologians. The reaction was largely due to the threat. Here is what they felt threatened by. Not that there wasn't a God. That was not the issue. Let's get this right finally, okay? Darwin was not an atheist. Richard Dawkins goes quite a bit out of the far field of reality when he says uh, Darwinism gives us a perfect right to be contented atheists. That is not what Darwinism was about. Richard Dawkins gets pretty polemical. I will be the first to say so, although he does make some excellent points of which apologists are going to have to someday grapple with. Make no mistake about it. They're getting around to trying to respond to him. I'll put it that way. For the most part, they're not doing very good. Some are, some aren't. Here is the point. The reaction was largely due to the threat that the natural explanation seemed to pose for the literal interpretation of the scriptures. That is what was upsetting the theologians. So this is where the animus comes from. And then he further says the chemical origin the chemical theory of the origin of life, Darwin made no attempt to explain how life began on earth. Evolution is not about the origin of life. That can't be said too often. There is a gross misunderstanding of that. It is about the change that occurs upon already living species and organisms. It has nothing to do with the origin of life. Okay? Just want to make that crystal clear. Yeah, some of you are talking about having Neanderthal blood. Yes, the Neanderthal genes are still in us. This is a demonstration clearly of what I talked about in part one, my opening part on this series, that evolution can't possibly give us a single pair, man and woman, Adam and Eve. That's the mythological aspect of understanding, not literal history. Yeah. A pretty important point to grasp. Yes. Thank you, Dan Vogel. That is an excellent comment. A fundamentalist reading of the scriptures is what is threatened by evolution. Spot on, brother. Yes. Absolutely. Page 203. Sorry, I'm eating and reading at the same time. That doesn't work very good. 
I wouldn't advise it. I'm the only one that can get away with this crap. I mean, I am the old fart backyard professor, right? Curious scientists are interested in problems concerning the physical construction of the earth and living things. Now, even though such questions may seem foolish or outside the limits of authorized knowledge to some other people. Okay, we get that. My good friend, for example, in commenting on a newspaper release of Dr. Leakey's archaeological discovery of the African, quote, near man, unquote, reported to carry the history of man's ancestry back 600,000 years. That's a long time ago, guys and gals. So here's what his friend told him. He said, I don't see why they want to discover things like that. Um, now, he's not a scientist, and although he frequently says that he accepts all truth, no matter what the source might be, he does not share the scientist's enthusiasm for the discovery of new truth. Joseph Smith is the one that encourages us all, however, to gain as much truth in all subjects, geology, physics, mathematics, read all the good books that we can, etc. So he's not following Joseph Smith very well. Isn't it odd that Mormons have been uh, encouraged, I'll say encouraged, um, to not want new truth. See, back in Joseph Smith's day, he said, man, they, they fly to pieces like glass every time I teach them something new. Well, you really mean to think that if you've read one or two books that you're satisfied with your knowledge in life? Look at the cotton-picking array of books I have behind me. If I was a multimillionaire, that would be tenfold. That would be a hundredfold. There's that many more books I want to read. I can't live long enough to read all the books I want to read. Where does this theme come from that, oh, well, they shouldn't want to discover new truths like that? When in point of fact, if you're not progressing in your knowledge, you're regressing. And this is a really important point. In fact, Hugh Nibley is the one that lamented that time and again. The Mormon scholar Hugh Nibley. His zeal without knowledge is spectacular in that regard. It's in his book, uh, uh, Nibley on the Timely and Timeless, the one that Truman Madsen put together. So on page 214, during the five years, now this is 1831 to 1836, the church had just begun, and in 1836, the Kirtland era had begun, right? This is the era when Darwin himself traveled around the world on the Beagle. That's fun to know, isn't it? So we know what Mormonism was going on while Darwin was, was traveling on the Beagle in his worldwide tour. Now he observed and collected plants and animals and fossils. On the Galapagos Islands, he was impressed with the gigantic tortoises and the large crabs, not like those on the shores of the South American mainland 600 miles away. They were different. Among the armored animals, he noted transitional forms from island to island. Different islands sometimes had entirely different species. He kept notes on all of these simple observations, and of course, he was going to think about this stuff, right? And he pondered over the strange relations. It is while he accumulated all of these observations that his faith in the fixity of species was shaken. 
notice this has nothing to do with God. It's not an atheist at work here. Please, let's put that stupidity to rest already. Let's just be a little bit on the level and keep things real here. It is the specific doctrine of the fixity of species that Darwin saw couldn't possibly be accurate. On his return to England, he published the Journal of Researches. He took care of other matters of immediate importance. When these tasks were completed, he returned to his notes on species formation and took time to reflect on the significance of his observation. Okay, so we've got that out of the way. Now, another idea that I want to share real quick on page 219. As an example of a scientist who was honest and objective in his search for scientific truth, but deeply sensitive to religion, Darwin himself might be cited. Yes, the man who is the devil incarnate, according to some fundamentalist Christian dinglings, and quite a few Mormons whom I've had conversations with through the years. Not lately, not for the last several years, but earlier in my youth. In the final paragraph of The Origin of Species, now this is probably one of the most quoted paragraphs in the entire origin, but let's look at it again from this gentleman's point of view, because I thought this was well done. Here is what Darwin said. He said, there is a grandeur in this view of life with its several powers. Life has several powers. Okay? This is Darwin at the end of writing The Origin of Species. Having been originally breathed by the creator into a few forms or into one, and that while this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed laws of gravity, from so simple a beginning endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. Darwin considered his theory of evolution to be quite compatible with a belief in God. In one of his last letters, he wrote, he said, I have never been an atheist in the sense of denying the existence of God. There you have it, straight from the Darwinian mouth. Now, this next section is so spectacular, but it's two and a half pages. I'm going to go ahead and do a little bit of reading, and I'll try to make it so that I'm not boring like they are in general conference, as we'll witness yet again for the umpteenth time here in a couple of weeks. It's just about here. Let me read this. This is a phenomenal insight, I thought, on this gentleman's part. Any new, and this is starting on page 220, 221, 222, for those of you who have this book, the, uh, the Search for Harmony. If you don't, you need to Google it and get it. it it's well worth the money. It's in paperback. I, don't, I can't imagine it's more than 20 bucks. It's fantastic. Well, any new development in science now may appear as a threat to some orthodox interpretation. <coughs> and it's like I've said, but Sorry, it's like I've said before, too. Where can you ever find, and it, it, I really don't care which religion you choose, where can you ever find where orthodoxy had it right? Not anywhere. 
<clears throat> not in any of the religions have we discovered orthodoxy has maintained its hold and continued on as the truth, even within whichever specific religious category you're looking at, Islam, uh, Shiitism, Shinto, uh, Mormonism, Christianity, Judaism, whatever. All religions and their doctrines have evolved away from orthodoxy. Now, when you start studying the history of religion and that idea dawns on you, it's quite a shock. I'll never forget when that occurred to me. That changed fundamentally. You don't want to be an orthodox because orthodoxy never got it right. <clears throat> this is why science is a threat, because the orthodoxy of science is evidence. And since new evidence continues to accumulate, the power, the pure power of science. Now, I'm not trying to be scientistic here. I'm not saying science has all the answers. I'm not saying science is the final say-so when it itself knows that it has its own limitations, right? It is not the final say-so, but it does have observations in nature and evidence, and we follow that evidence. That's how this works. This suggests new ways to interpret cherished phrases in line with knowledge and reason. We must be flexible, or you will become outdated. It's that simple. <laughs> I promise. <clears throat> now, man is more than an animal. The next question then is whether or not it makes a difference to man and his feeling of importance to recognize his animal ancestry. Well, obviously, Boyd K. Packer couldn't stomach that simple fundamental truth that has evidence. So he came up with some kind of a brain-dead response to it that means nothing. If it does, what adjustments are necessary for him to maintain his self-esteem and yet to accommodate scientific facts? Oh, science hurt our ego. Poor us. Well, suck it up, cupcake. Just recognize we come from the earth with all life, and we are literally related to every living form here. It doesn't matter what it is. You can step on a bug and you're killing one of your relatives. You can pick a plant and you're killing one of your relatives genetically. And on the atomic level, there is absolutely no difference whatsoever of us, the dirt, the rocks, the trees, the metal in our automobiles, the rubber in the basketball, the netting in a hockey arena, the ice, water, etc. On the atomic level, there are no differences. We all are the same stuff, which is essentially star stuff, <laughs> amazingly enough. So we are literally composed of the cosmic stuff because that's what we are, right? That's fascinating, isn't it? So anyway, well, it's going to require a change of a point of view, of course, to regard man as having received his body from the animals rather than from the especially created perfect state. 
and that's offensive to some religions. Well, tough luck. Let's get real is the is the theme that we need to begin enunciating here. It should be emphasized here that only the physical body is involved in the evolution concept. Okay. Whatever else goes into the makeup of a, a woman or a man is totally unknown from the scientific data. People who on occasion speak of man as a dual being were made of a body and a soul, or let's say the breath of life. These are sincerely distressed at the thought that man's body is an animal body, and that's the fact. Yes, it distresses you. Well, sucks to be you. For them, there is comfort in the thought that the body once was perfect and that man's principal task is to regain that perfect state. All right, I can live with that. All scientific evidence available on man's physical history indicates that he was, on the average, less perfect in times past than now. Anthropologists can demonstrate that early man as a whole were crude and barbaric, like Boyd K. Packer because he didn't like us touching our little factories, so don't do it. Certain individuals, however, were more highly developed than others. That makes sense. Man, as he was developed from the dawn of civilization down to our present era now, represents the finest fruit of the evolutionary process. That is a fair statement. But this does not mean that no finer fruit will be produced now, that also is a fair statement. But if superior physical types of man do arise, they will undoubtedly represent a new development, not a reversion to a perfect state once existing but subsequently lost. Oh. <laughs> now, there's some food for thought. Interesting. Accordingly, evolution provides an optimistic viewpoint. Now, this is so amazing. Uh, even Richard Dawkins, if you've never seen the grand show, the grandeur, the grandeur of life, or the whatever, I can't remember the name of the book. I've got it around here somewhere. Uh, he's very optimistic about this. Evolution is optimistic. And why is that? Because the way we can look at man is optimistically. We may well believe that the great days for humanity are ahead, not behind. Man is being created in the image of God. Well, an extreme view of evolution actually comes from religion, not science. This is kind of an interesting turnaround. And is embodied in the phrase, as God now is, man may become. You've heard that before. Yeah, it was the, uh, I'm just sure it was the Protestants up on 6th Avenue that originated that doctrine. This implies that man may become a god. Well, so, in a theological sense, this is tremendous progress. Joseph Smith in the King Father Discourse, you have got to learn how to become gods yourselves, one step at a time, right? So here we go. Theologians who propound this doctrine consider both the body and the spirit to be making progress and to even be endowed with the capacity for eternal progression. So that's optimistic, you guys, right? Nothing static, nothing boring in our future, just progress, except for that friend of that guy who wonders why people want to learn new stuff. Well, let him wallow in his ignorance, you know. 
Some people don't want to leave kindergarten because they like the toys. They want to be there all the way through their lives. So let them. Now, here's something interesting. The word animal itself has been used in describing the physical ancestry of man. This does not necessarily mean that man is only an animal, although the obvious uniqueness of man may not support the authenticity of the Bible. Who cares? Or the existence of God. Again, so what? It should be pointed out that man has achieved heights attained by no other inhabitant on this planet. His development of the spoken and written language has made possible the social inheritance, which forms a unique addition to his biological inheritance. Through this social inheritance, ideas and achievements of past generations are handed on to later generations, so that members of one generation build upon the achievements of their predecessors in a manner unlike anything possible among any of the other animals. Well, because one generation does build on the achievements of its predecessors, there is obviously a continued social evolution independent of the biological evolution that has brought man to his present physical state. Here we are communicating via computer. It's utterly magnificent. Just recognize that. That's pretty optimistic. That's pretty grand. We live in a phenomenal age, you know, right? This is the idea. Well, this is a unique achievement of man, and it enables him increasingly to control his own destiny. Man's ability to make and use tools has enabled him increasingly to adopt his environment to himself instead of adopting himself to his environment. And that can backfire if we overdo it. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people who overdo it, right? So moral and ethical values are important to a free society, and religion is one agency for perpetuating such values. It would be unfortunate for students and scientists to lose sight of such values because of a conflict between science and religion. Again, he makes a fabulous point here, right? Forget the war between who's right and who's wrong. Let's just function together as a decent, caring humanity and continue existing. That would be a better option, in my opinion. So scientists must remember that everything need not be scientific to be important. Again, a great point, truly. Yes, quantity is important, but not at the expense of quality. The qualities are not secondary, as Rene Descartes taught. That's my saying. I don't buy into Rene Descartes' split between the objective and subjective. And boy, I'm sure that's going to cause howls of hooting and derision. But I'll explain that in another video. I've been learning some new things that are exquisitely fascinating. Descartes wants us to think only quantity is real. Whereas quality, the color of a rose, the reality of the green, evergreen tree, etc., the flavor of a nut, he wants us to think that's all just in our minds and not in the real world. 
I just don't buy that split, that what is called bifurcation by Whitehead. I've been reading Wolfgang Smith, and he, he takes us along that road, and I will make videos on that soon. But again, coming back to this, it has a specific tie in here. Great issues of life are determined by emotional and ethical criteria rather than by cold intellectual decisions. Boy, aren't they ever, right? Out of the heart are the issues of life, Proverbs 4.20. Yeah. Theologians, on the other hand, now we talk to the theologians, they should recognize their debt to the critical attitude that has come with the age of science. Much of the superstition and the superficial emotion that has grown up with religion has certainly been removed by science, and I might add, for our betterment. Yes, I, I think so. A new and more intellectual approach has greatly strengthened religion, except the Mormons. <laughs> I, come on, I got to rib them, you know. You say the word intellectual to the brethren, and three-fourths of them faces turn white, pale, with utter fright, and the rest of them faint, because intellectual is a devil word to them, for whatever stupid reason, you know. Anyway, science with its objective methods is prepared to work on questions of what, of how, and when. Its function is to provide knowledge. So questions of why and by whom are for the most part within the province of philosophy and religion. During a period when there was no science, some questions such as how and when the earth was created got over into theology. The day is long since passed when scientific questions can be resolved by theologians. Wow, no joke. Not trained in science. In other words, all of the Mormon leadership. Is there actually a scientist there? Uh, no, Russell Nelson does not count. He is not a scientist. He was a heart surgeon. He was a doctor. That is not a scientist. Where are the John Witzos, the B.H. Roberts, the James Talmages, the Joseph F. Merrills? Where are the Orson Pratts and Parley P. Pratts? They are nowhere to be found. But what you'll find in Mormon leadership now is businessmen. And that shows because they are filthy rich. But who cares? They ain't taking none of it with them. And it's not going to save their buildings in an earthquake. So, you know. A great message of the Bible is that man has dignity. Now, it is time for us to wake up just a bit and begin to reinforce that, not only within ourselves, but to the other. And I'm as guilty of this as anyone is. I mean, you just saw me ridicule people I don't even know down there in Salt Lake City, except through their boring general conferences. So see, I have much to repent of too. But man does have dignity and he is important. Biology in its present state of development does little for man's dignity, but it shows that man is the only creature on the earth with the ability to think, unless you're Mormon, reflect, make, and use tools, and cooperate intelligently with his fellows. Now, I like to rib Mormons when it comes to this, and I'm doing it somewhat in jest, but unfortunately not near enough, uh, because they really do uh, shoot themselves in the foot with their silliness. 
and I don't mind clobbering them on it. Now, this next article, this one was an eye-opener. This one was splendid. And it's in this book, The Search for Harmony. Uh, this is Adam's Naval by Keith E. Norman. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks, Mark. I hear my phone buzzing, but I don't think it's any of you guys so good. I'm in the clear. Now, Keith Norman, Adam's Naval. What I'd like to do, if I may, please, and again, I'm going to, uh, I'll try hard not to intersperse too much commentary in this, but from pages halfway down on page 242 for the next couple of pages, this is his summary of his analysis of this theme of Adam's Naval. Uh, in other words, he's going to discuss evolution, science, the science of mankind in light of uh, biology and the scriptures. And how he analyzes this is for me, and, and this is just me because I think this is one of my very favorite loves. And so it it shocks people when I say, man, I love the way this works. Uh, so I'm going to read this selection. Because he shows what I consider to be a very much more realistic uh, cooperation of history embedded with mythology. Not as a false concept, but as the true story, which is what mythology is all about. So I thought this was exquisite. So let me read this because the nice thing Keith Norman does here is he does give you enough of the context scripturally. And again, just like I was saying earlier in my earlier episodes, the literal interpretation of the scripture is giving way. It has no choice because that is the least important part of the scripture, right? And so with him, this is yet another Mormon interpretation that is attempting to not necessarily reconcile, but at least cooperate, I'll say, with science in such a way that we can attain value from the scientific outlook on our scriptures, which really galls some Mormon people. They really don't like that. They say, no, Holy Ghost Scripture only in my house, right? Well, my dad was very close to that. But the relationship with the mythology now, Norman emphasizes. And from my perspective, this enhances the value of these stories. It does not denigrate them. And this might take me four or five more sessions of videos to explain why the mythology is an enhancing agent, not a denigrating one. Okay. You want to really get the ire of Mormons up on you. Just tell them their scripture is mythology. Yeah, you'll see what I mean, but let's take a look at a more deeper content. So LDS statements on the literalness of the creation and the Garden of Eden stories, these really do seem contradictory. There's no question. Adam is almost always seen as a historical figure. 
however, and the historicity of Genesis is intensified. Now, this gives us a background for understanding Mormonism, because the historicity of Genesis, based on the theology Mormonism has come up with, actually intensifies rather than diminishes. And here's why, because the peculiar features in their traditions, such as Adam on the Almond. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And the temple endowment. Okay, that makes sense too. And Brigham Young's Adam-God theory. Okay, now, so we begin to understand, okay, yeah, and I've ridiculed it. I, 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 have, I have said, no, the, the literal historical is certainly not the one I'm ever going to hang my hat on. And yet we understand why they take that wooden literal view in some respects. On the other hand, Mormons are told in the temple that the formation of man from the dust and of woman from the man's rib is only figurative. Interesting. So in addition, there is a... Now, now realize he wrote this in 1993. <laughs> I have not been in the temple since the 1980s sometime in the middle of 1980s. So it very well may not be there anymore, which again is an evolving aspect of the very temple endowment. See, evolution's everywhere, even within a religion that decries it and says it's satanic inspired. They can't help it. They've evolved too. Look, today's Mormonism is not Joseph Smith's Mormonism. I got bad news for you if you think it is. Today's Mormonism is not Brigham Young's either. So there you have it. So Mormons are told in the temple, yeah, that it was figurative. In addition, there is a strong impulse in Mormonism to universalize the Adam and Eve story. Now, this is interesting because this is a, uh, oh, I don't, I can't say it's a mythological concept, but it does occur. When we begin to universalize the stories, it it brings in a relevance to that story to us. For instance, Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan. We want to universalize that parable so that we end up being the Good Samaritan, right? That's what I mean by this. So there's a strong tendency for Mormonism to universalize the Adam and Eve story to invest it with mythical dimensions. The temple ritual instructs participants to consider themselves to be Adam and Eve. Now that's true as the drama unfolds. So Mormon scriptures also seems to recognize that Adam is more than a proper name for a single individual. The first man of all men have I called Adam, which is many. That's Moses 134, right? Well, although Joseph Smith's earlier writings largely accept the traditional language of the fall, we know that the doctrine of original sin was repudiated at the very beginning. He did not go with that. Without Adam's transgression and fall, there would have been no procreation and no opportunity for growth or joy. And that's both in the Book of Mormon and the Progress Prize. Opposition is a metaphysical necessity for existence itself. And we could not progress without experiencing evil. That's 2 Nephi 2, 11 and 13. 
So Joseph Smith's two attempts to rework this Genesis creation story found in both the books of Abraham and in the book of Moses in the Pearl Great Prize, this provides a fascinating study of the evolution of his own doctrinal thinking. Now, Dan Vogel's in the audience, and I'm very appreciative that you're here, Dan. One of the best books that I do believe you were an editor of. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Well, that one, too. Two books, Gary James Bergera, Line Upon Line, Essays on Mormon Doctrine. This shows the evolution of the doctrinal thinking, not only of Joseph Smith, but throughout the two centuries that Mormonism has been in existence. And uh, our own Dan Vogel edited This Word of God, another very exceptional text that shows the evolution and the changes of the interpretations of the scriptures and of our understanding of God and the witnesses to the Book of Mormon, etc. So this is a very important theme that even though it might offend uh, some Mormons, it doesn't matter. It's very, very real. And it's been done in many more books than just this one. So his two attempts show an evolution of his own doctrinal thinking in his 1830 revision of the open chapters of the uh, Bible, for instance, and it was published as the Book of Moses. See, the Pearl Great Prize. Joseph softened the overt mythology of a talking serpent. And how he did this was really interesting. He said it was possessed by Satan. <laughs> interesting. But he's trying to soften the idea here now. So he made little attempt to update the scientific details. And then again, on the firmament, now this still divides the waters above and below, and the events occur in the same skewed order as in Genesis 1. The doctrinal correction is evident, however, when God says, let us, in Moses 2.26, he is explicitly addressing his only begotten. The discrepancies between chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis are resolved in Joseph Smith's reworking by making the first version a spiritual creation, as Moses 3 and 5. So it is this feature of Mormon scripture, this insistence that the description of creation in Genesis 1 is spiritual rather than physical, that belies the attempt to reconcile Genesis 1 with the scientific version of creation. Now that's interesting. So in the succeeding description, though, in the Book of Mormon, or I mean in the Book of Moses, based on what we have attributed to the author called J in the higher criticism of the Bible, it's not clearly physically either. Of the garden the Lord planted and made to grow, he says, it was spiritual in the day that I created it, for it remained in the sphere in which I, God, created it. So what this is implying is that only with the fall did the earth, as we know it, come into being. And that's Moses 5.9. So such an interpretation would support a mythical view. It takes place in a realm where the rules of history are not yet operative. So observe how Joseph Smith, in his reworking of the scriptures, is not as literalistic as today's church, he's actually mythologizing it even greater.
I thought that was an exquisite insight here on uh, on uh, Keith Norman's part, but he's not done. He's not done yet. So now the most far-reaching difference here in the creation account in Moses, when we compare it to the biblical Genesis, is the pre-existence in Moses 4, 1 through 4. So this new motive was extensively developed in Abraham 3 in 1842. Here, the pre-existent intelligences were organized, and they were assigned to leadership roles, and then there was a plan to further their progression as it was explained. This plan had risks. Since it furthered their progression, it involved the freedom to choose evil as well as good, for instance, and it's the possibility of damnation as well as exaltation. So the choice wasn't obvious to everyone, and so many opted for Satan's safer alternative, right? So linking this pre-existent scenario with the Adam and Eve story is very important within the mythological significance. The literary category of myth, or we can call it prehistory if you want, in Genesis 2 and 3, this corresponds to the doctrinal category of the preexistence in the book of Abraham. So we can see the evolution, the change that Joseph Smith is bringing to the nuances of the creation story of Adam and Eve here. This is fascinating. The Garden of Eden story recapitulates the dilemma and the choice that we all faced in our pre-earth life, whether to remain in static security or risk everything and suffer pain, guilt, disappointment, and death in order to realize our full humanity and fulfill our potential to become as the gods. This constitutes what we call in Mormonism the fall. Very interesting. Now, this is the reason Mormonism rejects the original sin dogma's pessimistic view of humanity. So, in jo Joseph Smith, in reworking this material, actually turned it into an optimistic situation. There is no other way to progress, to gain knowledge of good and bad, than to conform and experience evil directly and experience evil on our own, away from God. God's presence is there. We, we are here. So it's our choice. We cannot hold God responsible for the plan of salvation's negative aspects or of our failings in the struggle. This is the theme here, see? So the book of Abraham version now reflects a distinct attempt to make the creation story more rational. And so this is kind of more or less an updating of its doctrinal points, which, which really uh, is what Joseph Smith focused on. The mythological aspect and the doctrinal view. So the creator gods. Now, in, in the book of Abraham here, these do not get instantaneous results from a mere word because how Joseph Smith explained it in the book of Abraham is they cause things to be formed and watched to see that they were obeyed. 
And so creation does not happen in just seven days, but it happens in eras or times. And when the lights are set in place during the fourth time, the gods, the gods, the plural, again divide the day from the night. And, and this is a specification, actually, that seems to recognize the problem of day and night preceding the creation of the sun, right? From the Genesis account. <laughs> so the most striking aspect of the Mormon belief system concerning the creation myth is the temple endowment. So let's talk about that for a minute. So this ritual presents the Genesis text in a dramatic form. Uh, and this is reminiscent of ancient creation New Year ceremonies, this guy says. It contains virtually all of the classical elements. You got the purification. You got the expiation of sin. You have the dramatic reenactment of the creation. You have the struggles between order and chaos. You have the sanctification of marriage. You have the blessing of progeny. And you even associate with dead ancestors. So the endowment is clearly not literal history. Now, this is important. Except for replacing the serpent with Satan and his aside about the creation of Adam and Eve as figurative, there's very little attempt is made to soften the mythological elements in Genesis 1 and 3 in the temple endowment. That's interesting. In contrast to the rest of the biblical history, and this is where communication with deity is through visions or revelation, however, here everything takes place in direct confrontation between humans and God. So the temple version has at various times gone well beyond even Genesis. And what it's done is it's added a variety of anachronisms to the Garden of Eden scenes, although recently some of these have been deleted. So in true mythical fashion, Norman says, the endowment ceremony abolishes time. It also abolishes space. So we're in myth mythology time here. This is really interesting. The temple is where heaven and earth and hell all meet together, and all of humankind, the past, the present, and the future, convenes there. Only in this setting is where we learn the true meaning of life. Okay, so what then shall we say about Missouri? <laughs> After all, Adam on Diom and his canonized in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 116, right? So there's even a song about it, number 49 in the new hymnal. However, despite my souvenirs procured from that very spot, from Adam on Diom, and he says, I contend that the significance of this too belongs to the realm of mythical truths. Just as Brigham Young and the Mormon pioneers reenacted the Israelite trek through the wilderness, Joseph Smith's designation of the beginning, that is the original sacred space, the center, the navel, as it were, of the world, this was in America. So this reinforces the idea of the new world as the promised land. You see how he's mythologizing not only the doctrine, but the actual geography. That's fun.
That's really fun. So this is the Latter-day Zion, North American continent, the Zion. Well, it's an elaboration of the Book of Mormon doctrine, of course. God establishes his covenant anew among the Gentiles in a pristine land, basically a second Eden. Uh, as the 10th article of faith adds, this will be where the Lord returns to the last day to renew the earth to its paradisical glory. And the end is to be a restoration and fulfillment of the beginning. That is, creation is finally redeemed. Yeah, that's the theme. So, Myth, properly understood now, is a powerful means of religious expression and should not be dismissed as though it were the antithesis of truth. Boy, this is something Mormons have to learn, right? In fact, all of us have to, yeah. This is very reminiscent of how Joseph Campbell and Marseille Iliata understood myth. So let me keep reading here. Myth is an important element of our religious heritage. To recognize the creation story in Genesis 1 and 3 as myth rather than history does nothing to denigrate its value for us, just as we do not reject the truth of Lehi's vision of the tree of life because it is only a dream. Or do we disregard the parables of Jesus because they're fictional? See, rather, these literary forms make the truths they teach all the more relevant to each of us because we are experiencing it. That was the theme here, right? Because myth and history deal with different levels of reality, it's still possible to consider Adam and Eve as actual historical figures. That was before Jerry Coyne came along with his book on evolution, however. I got to admit, uh, evolution absolutely wipes out Adam and Eve. But the mythological significance is not affected by the scientific truth. That's remarkable. Yeah, when you really, when you step back a step and look at it that way, you go, huh, okay, <laughs> very cool. So while recognizing the account of creation in Genesis is mythical in nature, in that sense, the question of historicity is irrelevant because it's not necessary to believe in a literal Adam in order to keep the faith or even to lose it, like some of us have, right? And insistence to the contrary is short-sighted. Well, he's definitely calling the leaders out here then because they insist on that literal Adam and Eve or else you're being tempted or the Holy Ghost is leaving you or what other stupid guilt-inducing cheap pop psychology they can throw at you. So, nor is a belief in creationism itself required of Mormons. Or so he said. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think the leaders would like what he said here. Biblical faith and scientific evolution are not mutually exclusive, but are two different approaches to truth. Science investigates the mechanisms of creation. Genesis discusses its purpose. So we can learn from both of them if we do not confuse the two, according to Norman, just as a literal reading of Genesis smacks of superstition, and it really does. A talking snake? Oh, come on. When you really stop and think about that, you see the utter stupidity. But from a mythological perspective, that snake is the midwife 
to their gaining greater knowledge. And so it's like it reminds me now of the Sioux and the Hopi and the Navajo mythologies they use in their sand paintings for their acquiring of a special knowledge. Not that it's literal history. Hell no. But that doesn't mean it's not meaningful. Again, hell no. That would be the wrong approach. I love how Norman wraps this up this way. This, this makes so much sense with mythology. So history completely demythologized is ultimately devoid of meaning. Now, I love that. Uh, I just happen to have this here too. I acquired uh, last year Heinrich Zimmer's the King and the Corpse. And this was edited by Joseph Campbell. Uh, Heinrich Zimmer was working on these essays when he unfortunately passed. And so Campbell very lovingly, and oh man, am I so grateful he did this. He got together with the widow of Zimmer and they together put this book together. Now this is one of the deepest spiritual books I've ever read. And it's just mythological stories. Uh, the mythology stories did not take place, but the meanings of the stories to help us get through the bad times and the good times in our lives and all are utterly fantastic. I read this book and wept when I was done with it, I did not want it to end. <laughs> and there's very few books that I'm that way with, you know. But uh, this one really kind of, to me anyway, and you'd have to read this to really see why I'm bubbling on and on about Keith Norman's essay here on the importance, the impact of putting the mythology back into the literal so as to get it is the literal reading that gives us so many blatant obvious scientific contradictions no the earth was not completely covered up in the flood and i mocked joseph fielding smith for saying that because that's how it supports the symbolism the religious symbolism but it doesn't. You don't have to completely cover the earth. You don't have to come up with that kind of absurd literality. But mythologically, it's entirely doable. And then the symbolism gets fabulous. Now, isn't that interesting how that works? Scientifically, historically, literally, it is an absurd idea. It is just absurd. A-B-S-U-R-D. Isn't education grand? Absurd. Mythologically, it just expands. It's glorious from the mythological statement. So this is, this is an angle, uh, I think that Mormonism is missing out on. From my from my own particular point of view, I, I think Mormonism would do well to uh, quit being so slavishly 
dedicated to the true history. Well, if Nephi wasn't a real person, then there's no meaning in First and Second Nephi in the Book of Mormon. That myopic view gets you nowhere because there is tremendous meaning in the Book of Mormon, even if it's fiction, even if it's mythology. In fact, I would propose, <laughs> especially if it's mythology or parable, however you want. As history, it's just ridiculous. As mythological and symbolic, it's perfectly obvious where meaning can reside. That completely transforms the whole theme of Lehi's vision of the tree of life, because the tree of life is such an incredibly overwhelmingly powerful mythology and symbolism, and that does occur throughout the ancient world. There's meaning. Not that there is an one and only true tree of life in a one and only Garden of Eden in Jackson County, Missouri. That is palpably ridiculous. But as a mythological meaning and story, it's fantastic. There's your difference. This is why the the really intensely intelligent and intellectual mythologists and historians of religion, etc., when they understand the actual relationship between the mythology and the religion, it enhances all of the ancient scriptures. What science demonstrates against the Bible is the stupidity of the literal historical. But that doesn't mean there wasn't an ancient Israel. The story of Adam and Eve is myth. Evolution has absolutely fundamentally shown that. But myth, not in a falsehood, but myth as in not literal history. And one of my favorite illustrations of this, and I point this out in a lot of videos, but I'm truly serious. This gives us an extra credible point to discuss with our Mormon family members or friends or whatever who are still insistent on being literal to the point of silly is William G. Devers, Beyond the Texts, an archaeological portrait of ancient Israel and Judah. There really was a historical ancient Israel and Judah, but it really isn't the ancient Israel and Judah portrayed in the Old Testament. And they say, well, archaeologically, we have the Assyrian ruins. Archaeologically, we have found the Mesopotamian materials. Archaeologically, we have the ancient Egyptian uh, evidence. Archaeologically, we have the ancient Hittites. We have the Assyrians, etc. Yes, none of that demonstrates the literal historical written record. The archaeology shows there was a people there, 
this is true. So when we read the Old Testament, if we read the Old Testament, and I will be the first to admit, it's extremely difficult. You think the English is difficult? Try it in Hebrew like I did. That's even worse. <laughs> but I got through it. But when you recognize the stories trying to give you a lesson, the obvious literality of Samson just doesn't cut the mustard. Come on. But understanding that it's describing a solar mythology symbolism completely changes that. There's the key. Science has wiped out the literal historical interpretation. If your faith and your Holy Ghost-born testimony is based on that, you're in trouble. That's why I'm no longer an apologist, because that's where my faith was based. That was how I was raised, and it's it's not always 100% ahistorical. I'm not saying that either. But the science of evolution has shown that this useful information we have of truly literal remains of ancient peoples shows us that our pedigree is earth-based and all of life is integrated on the molecular, well, the DNA level. And this in and of itself acquires a much grander meaning than worrying about the Lord stopping the sun for a day so Joshua could wipe out Jericho. There's something better in the stories of antiquity, this is what makes the Bhagavad Gita so fantastic. You notice that no one who accepts the Bhagavad Gita is even phased by any science. Guess who is the most consternated when it comes to science versus religion? The white American Protestants. And guess who are the ones who started this entire false enterprise of biblical archaeology? The white literalist Protestants. And guess who now is showing that there is no biblical archaeology? There never had to be my hero, William Dever. He is showing there is a history involved, just like we know, we know that there is a history in the kings of Britain of a King Arthur. But nobody in their right mind takes all of that literally as told by Jeffrey of Monmouth or whoever else. Uh, what's his nose? I've got all my King Arthur literature back there. You're just going to have to trust me. 
nobody's going to take that as literal history or else say, well, it's all a fake. It's not all a fake just because it's a mythological story. The Hopis on this American continent are the exact same way, amazingly enough, in their storytelling. It is a mythological-based story, but they are one of the oldest existing peoples on the planet. It's not literal history. It never was about that. Never. But it doesn't have to be for them to have their meaningful ceremonies and their lives being fulfilling lives. They also don't give a flying flip about what evolution and DNA science show about humankind at all. It doesn't phase their religiosity or their texts because they're not based on literal history. Only in America and possibly areas of Britain and Israel. Israel also, there are, there are some contingents of literalists in the Judaic faith, but not very. The Zohar, you don't even look at the Kabbalah if you're a historist, if you're a historicist literalist, the Kabbalah is not for you. But if you want a tremendous spiritual up boost, then by all means, jump into the Kabbalah and read the Zohar, the Bahir, and the Sefer Yetzirah, and then get together with me because I have a Jewish friend who kind of helps me out a little bit, and we can talk you through it because you're never going to understand it, and you're not meant to. It's not kindergarten, fourth grade level silliness like in Mormonism. It really is an elevated way of thinking, and it's remarkable. So anyway, that's essentially what I wanted to cover tonight. I I, I have no joke. Uh, actually, I wanted to. Oh heck, it's all. I'm only an hour seventeen. Do you mind if I read you another selection? Well, oh, hold on. Let me see how much I've got here marked. I want to. Yeah, let me read this to you. Let me read this to you. This is by one of my very favorite. Uh, this is one of my heroes in science. Uh, the Whys of a Philosophical Scrivener by Martin Gardner. Yes, that Martin Gardner, the mathematician, the author of thousands of mathematical art articles in Scientific America, the debunker of silly, ridiculous religious superstition. It turns out that he always maintained his faith and he is a deist. He does, he's a fideist, actually. He does believe in a creator. No kidding. This book just blew me away when I got it and read it. I just, wow, had no idea. Because he he, he was step, he was in lockstep with Isaac Asimov and Carl Sagan and all of the great exposers of, of religious hoax and phony miracles and fake bullshit stories invented by religions in order to bamboozle the public. He was in the he was in the genre of James Randi and Neil deGrasse Tyson today and Michael Shermer. And yet this man was a religious man and he never lost that. Let me read one of his selections. Let me read his idea. 
It is hard for me to imagine how any mathematician could be distressed by Gödel's incompleteness theorem. In his marvelous book, Infinity in the Mind, by Ruddy Rucker, and I do have that book, and he's right. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Wow. You want a book, Ruddy Rucker, Infinity in the Mind, one of the coolest books I have ever ever read. I've got to reread that again. Fantastic. So I was thrilled to see he was using Ruddy Rucker. Ruddy Rucker speaks of how an understanding of Gödel's theorem can hit one like a religious conversion, bringing with it a great feeling of liberation from anxiety. Now, this is interesting because, well, let me keep reading. Rucker describes Gödel's laughter as frequent, rhythmic, and hypnotic. Now, I sometimes fancy that God invaded Gödel's mind. Note the God in his name, Gödel, G-O-Umlaut-D-E-L. You've all seen it. That's his name, Gödel. Great mathematician. Being expounded on by a great scientific writer and mathematician himself. Fun stuff, this stuff. So for uh, Gödel invaded, or I mean, God invaded Gödel's mind for the purpose of letting us mortals in on one of heaven's transcendent jokes. <laughs> that even in elementary number theory, in elementary number theory, there are truths we will never know with certainty to be true. A still deeper limitation of science, this is on page 330, a still, a still deeper limitation of science is built into the nature of all formal systems. At any stage of the game, one may ask this question, why this particular system? Well, obviously, there is no way to answer if the question is asked about the ultimate system. The only way science can explain a law is to subsume it under a more general law. Suppose that physicists eventually discover one monstrous equation that describes how space-time gets itself tied into all those fantastic little knots called particles. We could then ask, why that equation? Clearly, physics regardless of how close it gets to bedrock axioms, has to accept the ultimate structure of the universe as something given. It is the nature of the scientific enterprise that it cannot, in principle, ever answer the super-ultimate question of why there is something rather than nothing or even the lesser question of why the something that is our universe has the basic structure that it has. The statement that science can, in principle, discover everything is defensible only when reduced to the trivial tautology that science can discover everything science is capable of discovering. 
Anyone who has read thus far surely realizes that I believe there are truths totally beyond the reach of science and reason, even assuming an infinite time for the human mind to evolve. Now, I do not mean anything so trivial as whether the cosmos will stop expanding or whether there are black holes or if gravity and electromagnetism can be unified or if there are intelligent creatures on other planets or whether Fermat's last theorem and Goldbach's conjecture are true. I mean questions that are in principle beyond the capacity of any mind, well, other than God's, to formulate. Truths that lie beyond the farthest rim science is capable of reaching. Now, George Cantor was criticized by some of his unworthy opponents for implying that God did not exist, because in Cantor's transfinite set theory, one can prove there is no highest transfinite number. Cantor not only did not imply this, he did not even believe it. He was a deeply religious man who placed God in a region that transcends. See, we've lost this word. Transcends all finite and infinite sets. It is because I, too, believe in this holy other realm now, this is a realm in which our universe is an infinitesimal island that I can call myself a mystic in the Platonic sense. That's powerful. That's very interesting. Let me keep reading, of course, if it's okay. I am, of course, not arguing a case, but I'm only expressing an emotion. It has no agreed-upon name. There is no way you can talk to someone into feeling it any more than you can talk someone into falling in love or liking a piece of music or a type of cheese. Rudolf Otto, the German Protestant theologian, he coined the word numinous. Now, this comes from the Latin numen, and what this means is divine power. And he said that is what expresses this emotion. The word should not be confused with Immanuel Kant's noumena, which refers to the unknowable realities beyond the phenomena of our experience. For Otto, the essence of the emotion is an awareness of what he called the mysterium tremendum, the tremendous mystery of the holy other. Now, Otto did not invent that phrase, the Holy Other. It is a translation of what St. Augustine called the Aliudvalda. 2,000 years earlier, the Hindus called it the Anyad Eva, applying it to Brahman, their ultimate God. So for Otto, the sense of the numinous is compounded of feelings expressed by such words as awe, terror, dread, mystery, fascination, astonishment, wonder. Well, if one is a theist, then the emotion combines with strong feelings of humility, of the littleness of oneself, of holiness, of gratitude for the privilege of existing. I believe that the degree to which a person feels these emotions is roughly proportional to the strength of that person's faith in God. 
Now, I know of no great theologian in or out of any organized religion who did not have a profound sense of the numinous. It is the secret of the book of Job. It is the emotion that engenders and sustains all the religious faiths of history. Pantheists vary widely in the degree to which they are moved by the numinous. The emotion is understandably weak among those for whom all existence is no more than a dreary repetition of the fields we know. It is strong among pantheists who see the universe as a shadow of some vaster realm, as a world of illusion, and this is the Maya of the Hindus. It is strong in Taoism, for the Tao is as far beyond our comprehension as Brahma. It is strong in Baruch Spinoza, who, although he had no personal God to whom he could pray, he thought of being as having an infinite number of attributes, and these transcend human comprehension. So the emotion was strong in Albert Einstein, who considered himself a Spinozist. The most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. Einstein wrote in a passage that is often quoted, it is the fundamental emotion which stands at the cradle of true art and true science. Whoever does not know it and can no longer wonder, no longer marvel, is as good as dead, and his eyes are dimmed. It was the experience of mystery, even if mixed with fear, that engendered religion. A knowledge of the existence of something we cannot penetrate, our perceptions of the profoundest reason and the most radiant beauty, which only in their most primitive forms are accessible to our minds, it is this knowledge and it is this emotion that constitute true religiosity. Well, in this sense and in this sense alone, I am a deeply religious man. And so, this is one of the most incredible expositions. Uh, I'll have to read more selections from this book. I don't know how popular this book ever was. Uh, I found it at a used bookstore for 50 cents, and I was thrilled to find it because I had no idea he had written it. And so I got it and read through it and just blew my mind about how much information he provided for the necessary lack of literalness in religion in order to appreciate the awe, the mystery of existence. You can't do that with a literal historical understanding, and you can't do that with a literal science either. It takes something more, according to one of the greatest scientific writers who ever graced our orb, Martin Gardner. So he's got a lot to offer also. So anyway, okay, now I am at an hour and a half. Uh, you want to talk to me for just a few minutes? I'll read through a couple of your comments, or you can ask me some questions. This is, by the way, all of this talk on evolution. Now, see, this is my fourth one, and I do have another one I'd like to do, at least one more, all because of last week, I, I did an audience appreciation, and I asked you, what are some of the subjects you wanted me to cover? Well, this was one of the requested, and it's taken me five full videos to get through it, and I'm not done, or four, and it will take me five. So I am trying to be cognizant of you guys getting giving me so many wonderful requests, and I am beginning to work on those and fulfill them. So whoever it was that asked me about this idea of how does the church look at the 
the DNA, the science, the evolution of pre-hominid man, this is my response. The church just sucks at giving us any information on this whatsoever, and the subject just terrifies them. They don't dare comment on it at all, and so they fobbed it off onto their scholars, whom they can then have plausible deniability. Oh, no, none of that is official church doctrine. I, what a cop-out, right? From, from guys who supposedly have communication with the creator of the universe, just like I have communication with you through this this uh, computer monitor and on the chat group. No, our communication is much stronger than the ones claimed in Salt Lake. At least the evidence appears to me to point in that direction. Wow, so I haven't shut up for an hour and a half. I'm surprised all of you aren't asleep. <laughs> oh, is Radio Free Mormon here too? Welcome, Radio Free Mormon. It looks like Lashram32 is also here. John Wasbarski. Oh, Debbie Joe and Patty Cake. Welcome, all you guys. Doug Vincent, I've already said hi to you. Yeah, Pat has a thought. Good job. Pat has a thought. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, that's true. Roughly the number of books I have, uh, I probably got. Uh, let's see, no, not probably 2,200, 2,300. At one time I did count it and I had like 3,100, but I haven't, unfortunately. Oh, wait, I've got more upstairs. Yeah, yeah about 2,200, something like that. So not a real big library. Uh, I'm still just a small potato in the field of spuds. <laughs> I'm barely a speck. I'm virtually a minuscule nobody, but hey, it's fun to read this stuff, I'm telling you. So, well, I don't know if it's impressive, but it's it's a lot of fun to have them, though. Oh, good. Thank you, Peter Higgs. That's very nice of you to say. Yeah, yeah, the, the chat room here is always phenomenal. You guys are just spectacular. Uh, your recall of what you have read is amazing. Oh, well, thanks, Pat has a thought. I don't know if it's recall or just desperation, but yeah, I, I enjoy it. At least I'm not a tater tot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, baby. Backyard professor, tater tot power. <laughs> That's not acting very professional, is it? People are going to start watching this and see how I act and say, oh, this guy's a dingling and disappear. That's why nobody watches my stuff. <laughs> I can't be too professional. I've tried. I, I just can't. I got to be myself and take me as I am or forget it. You know, I can't fake it. So, oh, wow, Radio Free Mormon. That's impressive. You had 2,200 comics as a kid. Wow, you outdid me, pal. <laughs> oh, Debbie Joe, quit. You're making me blush. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. yeah. Debbie, Joe, and Mark, how many of the books have you read completely? Uh, I would say three-fourths of them. Uh, some of them I've deliberately bought as reference books, but I have been through them, and, and I constantly uh, cross-reference from one book to another. This is in this The Wise of a Philosophical Scribner. I always make my own indexes. And then I refer to other books in my notes and their pages so that whenever a subject comes up, if I need to do a talk on it or something, I can pick up one book. And before I know it, I have nine or ten on the table and I can put together a complete 
you know, discourse of obfuscation like I always do. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey, Peter Higgs. That's an important point. Radio Free Mormon has progressed from comics to Marvel t-shirts. And we have evidence. We have evidence, RFM. You can't run and hide. You have been videoed. <laughs> we go to Mormonism Live. And there you are, pal. <laughs> oh. Yeah, the Archie comics were classic, weren't they? Yeah. Okay, you guys. Thank you for coming out and listening to me. I appreciate it. It's always fun. Uh, oh, absolutely. Oh, Mr. Natural. Hey, welcome. You betcha. My pleasure. Yeah, I, we got to get a BYP t-shirt. Yeah, baby. We got to get a picture of me and my ugly mug or whatever yelling out. Yeah, baby. Uh, we need to tell Bill Real that, Radio Free Mormon. We need to get something like that working up. That'd be fun. Yeah, BYP t-shirts. All right. All right. We'll try to make it happen. I promise. We'll talk about it. So that would be fun. So uh, I'm going to head out. Uh, thank you. Don't forget Wednesday night, Mormonism Live with Bill Real and our own Radio Free Mormon here. Oh, thank you, Radio Free Mormon. Yeah, I think it'll work real good. And uh, Next Sunday, I will uh, do a Sunday school again, Sunday, 10 a.m., and then a Sunday night fireside, 6 p.m. During the course of the week, don't forget, I am upgrading my uh, backyardprofessor.org podcast, so keep your eyes on those. Uh, be sure and hit the notification button because I'll, I try to upload. I'm upping my game. I'm going to try to upload two or three a week if I can get through to it. Uh, so there's a lot more information coming out. And in the meantime, remember, be good, do well, have fun, work hard, be great neighbors, be good citizens of your countries, be friendly, smile at everybody. It makes you wonder what they've been doing, or it makes them wonder what you're up to. That's what I meant. Yeah. Smile. It's mysterious. I promise. It sometimes bugs people. <laughs> It's a hoot to do. It's fun. And don't forget to never stop smiling either. And yes, I did join a gym and I am going to be working out. So I'll keep, I'll keep track of the progress and I'll let you know about my progress. I am going to get down to 200 pounds. I'm committing to it publicly. I was up to 260, way too heavy on my knees. I am now down to 235. So I'm making fabulous progress. I have 35 pounds to lose. In the meantime, I'm going to get bigger guns than Radio Free Mormon has because I am in the gym now and I'm going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in three years. <laughs> well, at least from the neck down. I don't want to be as ugly as he is, but I'm close, but not that far gone yet. <laughs> so thanks for all the likes. Appreciate all your participation. I enjoy absolutely every, every one of you. So, all right. I will catch you next time on The Backyard Professor Live. Ta-ta.